<clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. I remember being um, maybe 22, 23. I had a desk job and I hated it. <laughs> I straight up was like, I hate doing this. This is not cool. That's Eric Escobar. He's a Filipino Mexican comedian based in Los Angeles. He's performed all over the United States and has opened for Rex Navarrete and Jerry Seinfeld. He's also released a TEDx talk and can be seen on Last Comic Standing, BuzzFeed, VH1, and the show I Can See Your Voice. Eric's unique vantage point as a mixed-race Catholic school LA child brings both a sensitivity to racial humor and a fearless desire to share his honest experience as part of two cultures. This is Partially Pinoy, and we are powered by Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics. So Eric, the number one question I, I get, or the first question I get when I tell people I'm half Filipino, half Iranian is, how did your parents meet? That is the question I'm gonna pitch to you right now. So, so tell me, Eric, how did your parents meet? So my parents met in kind of a, an interesting, unique scenario because my dad, he's Mexican, but he actually was kind of born and raised in Los Angeles in the area out here. And it was at a time where it was very, you're an American now. You're not Latino. You're not Mexican. Don't speak Spanish. Don't eat Mexican food. Like do American things because they want to assimilate and, you know, Western culture so strongly. So that was kind of like the vibe of my Mexican dad. My Filipino mom moved here when she was, I want to say 21, maybe 22 from the Philippines. And you know how Filipinos are. We love our culture. We love our heritage. We have amazing food. Let's give everyone our food. We have amazing games. Let's party with everyone. And it was really interesting because growing up in a a kind of, you know, like a biracial, like Filipino and Mexican household, I never really got any of that Latino side because my dad never really had any of that, you know, Mexican culture ingrained in him. If anything, it was bad. But then on the complete flip side, my mom is like super, super, super Filipino. And I'm like, oh, this is the culture that I guess I'm going to kind of have and take in and like celebrate because this is all I know. They actually met because they were working together and apparently they were dating for seven years. I've been with my wonderful partner, my amazing girlfriend for two years and she's already pressuring me for a ring. So my mom must have definitely been like, yo, seven years, we got, let's go. It's been too long. So after seven years of dating, um, they eventually got married. I was born about a year later and uh, yeah, we've been kind of, you know, just been in the LA area ever since. Wow. And you're an only child? Only child. One of those. I'm an only child. Oh, super crazy. That's amazing. Like there's a lot of half Filipino only I don't know why I think it's so insane because Filipinos like to have you know more than one kid typically but there's been a lot of mestizo guys where I'm like well you're also an only child this is weird dad's in his 70s my mom's in her 60s so by the time I had me it was kind of like yo this is kind of like our miracle kid we didn't even think we could have one but we had one we don't know if we can have any more so they ended up with me and I was enough work so it's fine yeah they had you and they were like we're done. We're good. Yeah. He's <laughs> <We're> good. <laughs> I think for you, there must have been, you know, so many different layers to self-discovery because, you know, there's being a minority in general in America, and then there's being mixed race and sort of discovering each of those. When did you first realize that you were a mix or that your parents were of two different 
very opposite cultures. Ooh, interesting. I feel like it for me, it was, it was really kind of cool. Cause I'm really grateful that I grew up at a kindergarten, elementary school, junior high, even high school, um, very diverse schools. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like all black, all white, all Asian, all Latino. Like I had black friends. I had Samoan friends. I had, you know, a couple other Filipino friends. I had Japanese friends and it was really cool to see that diversity. And I think growing up in that, you kind of don't really, you kind of can't tell like, oh, you're mixed. Oh, you're full. Oh, you're first generation. Oh, your family's been in America forever. You don't really like see it until you start seeing like chunks of culture. And I feel like that for me, that was very much um, high school because I went to a, a Catholic high school where there are a lot of Filipino kids. And that's when I first started to see like, oh, we're not all just like chilling and homies. Like these are the Filipino kids who are first generation born in the States. And this other crew, they're all the Filipino kids that like were born and raised in the Philippines and now they're in the States. And these guys are all the people who are half and they're chilling with them, <laughs> their own group. And I think seeing the clicks in high school really kind of showed me like, I identify as a Filipino, I identify as also Latino, but this is where I see like, this is where everyone's kind of going with their own group. And I guess I'll be with all the halves and Hapa people and cool, this is great. Let's be friends with everyone though, that'd be better. So in your situation, I think that's really interesting. You weren't necessarily more comfortable with any one group. It sounds like you were sort of absorbed into the group that was most similar to you. Like, do you feel like you could have hung out or connected to any of those groups? A hundred percent. I think as a comedian, I think that's something that I love about it. Like, I love the common language of comedy. We all laugh. Everyone can laugh. Everyone can find things funny. That's something that's really cool for me. And I think that's really struck a chord with me because in high school, racially, my identity was kind of mixed. And there kind of was that ability to pop in in other groups, hang out with different people, but you really only kind of like hung out with your own clique and your own vibe. And I thought it was so fascinating. Like, I can't we all just hang out? But I think it really comes down to, um, you know, the commonalities people felt. Like if you, like as someone who spent their first 12 years in the Philippines and then, you know, like came to the States, there are things that you are going to find super, super in common with other people who grew up in the Philippines. And I think everyone kind of just organically bonded over those things. Everyone who was Hapa and half and half, we were always like, yeah, our Asian moms and our white dads. Like it was like a weird thing to come together over, but those are the, just the experiences you have and you kind of organically connect with the people with those similar vibes. Eric, you would, you would be surprised how deep this goes because I've interviewed a couple of people who, you know, the only space in which they feel comfortable are people who are similar to them yeah. and, and half. And so I, I feel like there is something, as you're saying, like there's something so deep and so different about being mixed. And, and I really want to get into all of this with you because I think you have so much to say on this topic that it's almost subconscious that that's what people are drawn to. It's and not even for us. Like, I can't tell you how many times it's happened at least maybe a dozen times when I was single, when I would have a friend, I had a lot of Filipino friends who would have a half Filipino, half Mexican friend, and they would try to set us up. And I'm like, thanks, but if you can set me up with other non half Filipino, half Mexicans, like it's so weird. It's like, oh, you're both the same, that you gotta get to have babies. And it's like, ah. <laughs> Maybe this has to do with like the degree to which you're assimilated in maybe the larger culture as well. It sounds like you're assimilated to an American, like a diverse American culture 
Would, would you agree with that, that this is sort of where you feel most comfortable within a diverse space where you are just accepted for who you are on a deeper level? Totally. We all try to be the most sincere version of ourselves at, in all interactions and in all, you know, whether it's in job interviews at work with family, who it is, we all try to be who we are, but we really do kind of like tailor our actions and our words and kind of who we are depending on the situation that we're in. And me hanging out with my half Filipino friends in high school was a very different person than the Filipino American that I was hanging out with all of my mom's family and all of my cousins and my aunts and uncles. That was super Filipino. It's interesting how you kind of just go where you go and kind of just adapt to what that is. Tell me about that exposure to your Filipino culture where you could actually decipher a culture that was Filipino separate from a culture that was Latino. Like, how was that exposure for you? Like, where'd you, when'd you realize, oh, like, this is actually who I am and this is very different from who, how my dad grew up, you know, because I would personally like watch my parents together and I just could see the difference. It was so clear. I hear that very hard. For me, when I first started kind of before, when I was a kid, things were just things. They were just things you did. Your aunt would say something funny and that was just what she said. Or, you know, my dad would do something. That was just what he did. But something that really struck a chord with me, um, both in terms of my identity and in terms of being a comedian and really getting into stand-up and, you know, taking this on as a career and a lifestyle, um, is Rex Navaretti. Rex is an amazing Filipino comic. He's super funny, super great. And when I was in high school, I, I'm aging myself, but we'd all like crowd around like an iPod, you know what I mean? And be like, oh, let's listen to this. But Rex, he would do a lot of Filipino stuff where it's like, this is what Filipino titas do. This is what your tito boy always does. You know what I mean? Look at these weird foods that we're eating. Look at these things that we're celebrating in our culture. And listening to him and hearing those jokes and those bits were really big for me because they didn't just show me kind of like, oh, this is comedy and this is fun. But it also showed me like, oh, that is like, such a thing that my aunt does, or that's totally a thing my mom does, or my uncle does, or this is such a thing that we do when we're together. You know what I mean? At a party, this always happens. And I think hearing comedy through the perspective of a film was so cool. This is something that me and him shared, me and my family share, but I don't share that with the other mixed kids, or I don't share that with, you know, these people who are from a different culture. It's things that you know, but it's like when someone says them, you know how it like clicks differently? That's when it really happened for me. Have you spent time in the Philippines? I have. I went there um, twice when I was probably like junior high, middle school age, and then once in high school. And it's been amazing. But as someone who's 30, I wish I could be there as a 30-year-old. You know what I mean? Well, I wish I could be there as like a 25-year-old when I could like walk and breathe and not be as like, oh, God, I'm tired all the time. I've been there, but I really wish I could go there as like an adult adult and really like experience everything kind of in that mindset and that time in my life. I'm so curious to know what your observation is of Filipino humor, because as I was thinking about like this conversation we're having, I thought, oh, I wonder what if Eric thinks that Filipinos in general have such a great sense of humor and also don't take themselves too seriously. And when I started going down that road, I thought, you know, like Filipinos have really funny nicknames for each other that have nothing to do with the name they were actually given. Like my dad's name is Manuel. He's called Manny, but his nickname is Totoy. And everybody has like this. And so I think just just kind of in who they are as a people, because partly Filipinos don't take themselves so seriously. Again, we're stereotyping, but 
we just established that there are things that are purely Filipino. Like it's almost like the humor is built into the culture, this lightheartedness, right? And so what, what are your thoughts and observations seeing your own people express themselves with humor? Before I get into that, I just want to say my mom's name is Carmen and everyone calls her Menchu. So it really is, <laughs> those nicknames are all across the board. And I'm always like, I don't understand. Why is your name James if we're <laughs> calling you Manak? You know what I mean? Like, why is that? Like, it's so crazy, but that's something I love about it. So I was uh, doing an MFA. I was going to grad school uh, specifically for comedy and comedy theory, comedy studies. And one thing that I found that was, I don't know if the word is cool, but I thought it was so interesting is the more um, oppressed, the more crazy a certain situation is, the more humor is going to come out where it's silly and wacky. Whenever there's, you know, a situation where people are more comfortable, you know, it's kind of like that saying, what is it like philosophy? Philosophy is like a rich man's game, whatever it is. Like whenever there's kind of more freedom and comfortability, that's when humor starts becoming, you know, more dark, more political, more introspective, more philosophical, because you have that time to play with it. When you look at American stand-up, even though American stand-up started the game, like, we were comfortable in America. You know, people had houses, people could eat food and afford things. So they're getting political, they're getting dark, they're getting very thinky. And kind of in a weird way on the flip side, you look at the Philippines and there are so many Filipinos who are just such hustlers and hard workers. You know what I mean? You're working for not a lot of cash, 12 hours a day. Um, There are people who are, you know, they're look at like nursing. Like there are people who are nursing elsewhere they're sending back money and there's something about the filipino culture that really is about that like hustle and that hard work and let's go and i think because we're so um (laughs) good at working at hustling when we finally have time to relax when we finally have time you know grab a beer get a meal with friends we don't want to talk about the dark stuff or the political stuff we just want to have a good time. We just want to be silly. We just want to, you know, have weird nicknames for each other. Think of weird puns. And I think there's something that's almost like a superpower within the Filipino community in that, you know, you work so hard, you dedicate yourself to this life. And when you want to be funny and when you want to laugh, you go to the completely opposite end. And it's just so fun and sincere and joyful. And I think that's why a lot of Filipino comedy is so just like fun and wacky. Like, even stand-up out there, it's interesting because when we hear stand-up in the States, we think, all right, it's going to be um, this girl or this guy. They're going to get on stage, have a microphone. We're all going to sit down. They're going to tell us jokes. When you say stand-up in Manila, when you say stand-up in the Bow City, they think of almost like drag queen shows where people like come out dressed to the nines. They're crazy and people are heckling and they're yelling and they're like going back. Like even the definition of stand-up out there is so just wild and fun and big and loose. And it's, it's cool. I think it's super cool because it's unlike any other region, not even in the world, but even in Asia. You know, Hong Kong stand-up is very traditional. Japanese stand-up is very traditional. Filipino stand-up, Filipino comedy, it's its own breed of crazy. And I love it. And I think that's connected to how accepting the Filipino people are. As someone who grew up there... You know, cross-dressing was something I saw regularly as a kid. It was it was accepted. Drag uh, drag is accepted very openly. I know I know there's discrimination. I know that exists, but but overall, it was something that was open and exposed. And and so I think when in general you're accepting of the other in that way, I think even the fact that Filipinos are able to live all over the world and work all over the world, there's this acceptance of the other, 
you then, you know, can sort of in, informalize everything, I guess. So that's how I would describe it. And it even kind of almost deconstruct what stand up means. You know, Iranians are all about how everything started in Iran and we are like the greatest people that ever walked the earth and Filipinos go into these service oriented careers and that as a people, there's just this humility that exists within Filipino culture. The things I know about Mexico are that the country of Mexico is the 15th biggest economy in the world, very wealthy culturally, also had a revolution, several revolutions, you know, so there's all of this history tied to like war and and so in the Philippines, also, there have been so many revolutions against the same countries, the same country. If that has meant anything to you as a comedian, but also just as a human being. You got to be a fighter in comedy. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just want it. Like, you got to need it. There are people who it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll take this job. And, you know, like, I don't know if the pay is great. You know, maybe it's like the commute's like half an hour from work. And I'm like, yo. I'm driving eight hours to Tucson for a $50 gig and driving straight back. Like, don't complain about your long commute. Don't complain, you know what I mean, about, like, things like that. Like, comedy is really, you really got to need it. And I think that fighting spirit within me from both sides of my family kind of, like, set me up on this path where I'm a fighter. I think as a comedian, it's, it's insane because it's a, it's a job where you can't just want it or think like oh this would be fun as a hobby like you really have to need it you know what i mean there's going to be years where you're not getting paid um or you're getting paid very little there are going to be years well not even years there's going to be in your life you can do a sold out theater and get a standing ovation and then two hours later you're performing at a dive bar for no one and someone throws a bottle at you like there's just highs and lows it's there's something so exciting about seeing joy in others and giving to others and I think it's, it's such a core Filipino and Mexican thing. You know what I mean? Home and family is very, very central to Filipino culture, for sure. But also Mexican culture. I, I just finished watching a documentary on tacos on Netflix. <laughs> And I was just sitting there, A, salivating, but also fascinated by how these recipes were sort of perfected for this idea of like gathering and family. And when I was in junior high, <clears throat> I wrote this essay basically about like, what, what was your grandparents' life like? Or what was your family's life like? And in the essay, I was talking to my dad about it, talking to my grandma about it. And it was fascinating because they were basically talking about what you just said. They were like talking about like making a meal. And my grandma would make the tortillas and her sons would make the meat. And, you know, like the cousin would come over and they would, you know, maybe create a side dish or bring rice or something. And all it was, was a taco. It's a little taco, but that taco is the brainchild and the, you know, the product of 10 people working together in the same kitchen over the love of each other and the love of food. Like it's more than just a piece of food. It's, it's community. And there's something so exciting about that. And so like, just communal about that, that I love so much. And, and no food to me is more communal than tacos. And I, I must say, you know, Persian food is absolutely delicious. Filipino food, very, very, very delicious. But tacos to me are perfection. Like you, you Amen. can be vegan, you can be vegetarian, you can be paleo, you can be keto, you can be a little kid, you can, it can be mostly raw. You, I mean, it can be anything and like Mexican food is going to work in the same meal, like at the same meal, 
the food is going to work for wherever you're coming from. And I think there's nothing more universal than tacos. It's amazing. It's, it's base, straight up base. I'm a big tripe guy. A lot of people don't like the deepas, but I'm a big tripe guy. So that's my go-to taco when it's available. But it's one of those random ones that you're talking about where it's like, I didn't even know that was a thing up until, you know what I mean, a while back. Yeah. So I think Mexicans have definitely perfected their cuisine. I had a professor in grad school who said that, you know why Filipino food is not as popular as others? And he said it was because the Philippines has never had a monarchy. I remember being in my early 20s. I started becoming, you know, more into like Filipino food, Filipino cuisine, Filipino culture. And everywhere I would go, even if it was like a Chinese or Japanese restaurant, all my Filipino friends would order a side of vinegar. They're like, oh, can we get a side of vinegar? Can we get this? And I always thought it was so crazy until I started eating more Filipino food. I'm like, I need something to cut all of this. Like this, <laughs> this lechon and this crispy karakara, this is going to murder me if I can't just like burn it through my esophagus really quick. Good call. Do you speak Tagalog and Spanish? I don't speak Spanish. Unfortunately, my dad just like never learned it, which is kind of crazy. So I never got that vibe. My mom speaks Tagalog, but according to my aunts and uncles and family, they're like, wow, you really lost your Filipino tongue after living in the States for 30 years. Because <laughs> I guess hers, you know, the, the Tagalog that my aunts and uncles and my mom speaks, it, it is very Americanized. It's almost like shorthanded between them because for the past 30 years, that's the most Tagalog that they were speaking with each other. And they're just like, oh, we can do the shorthand stuff. Um, I feel like when I hear Tagalog, I can somewhat understand like, oh, okay, they're talking about going out to eat or, oh, I think they're splitting the bill or they're, you know, going to do whatever. I can kind of take little things, but in terms of speaking, I am horrible. Absolutely horrible. My, my Tagalog ends with garlic fried rice. All right. That's like all I can really say. It's very limited. If I dropped everything and went to Manila right now, cool. I'd, I'd have to download Duolingo Plus or something for that. We'll return to our show and hear more from our guest in just a moment. And what I found is when I went by myself, I would, I would get pulled over a lot. If I were to bring an opener, if I was touring with another comic who's also, you know, like black or Filipino or Asian or Latino, whatever, we get pulled over all the time. This show is brought to you by Podcast Network Asia, powered by Podmetrics. Podmetrics takes care of the details so we can focus on making the best content for you. Visit podmetrics.co and sign up for free. Use code PARTIALLYPINOY. Okay, let's talk about comedy. Yeah! So my daughter, who's eight, you know, I was telling them about this interview and I was, you know, saying that I was writing a series of questions to ask you. She says, oh, ask him, what led you to be a comedy master? Man, I'm like a comedy squire. All right. I appreciate the wonderful kind words from your amazing daughter. I think what kind of led me to this journey was, it was a couple things. One, I remember being um, maybe 22, 23, I had a desk job and I hated it. <laughs> I straight up was like, I hate doing this. This is not cool. And I remember when stand-up first started, you know, really getting better and better and sort of like going out, doing shows, or getting on the road, starting TV stuff. And I didn't need a side gig and I could go full time. That was like 
the best feeling in the world to be like, I don't have to do a nine to five. I don't have to like, that really drives me to keep going. But a little earlier, I mentioned Rex Navarrete earlier. Um, just hearing comedy is so, it, it's so crazy how, let's just say we have someone who might be, you know, maybe a, let's say politically, they're, they're very on the right. Maybe, you know, they're in their 60s, their 70s, they believe a certain thing. And then you have someone who's super liberal and they're 20, 25 years old. They could both listen to George Carlin or Richard Pryor or, you know, the greats and both laugh. You know what I mean? I don't care how different you are from someone. Comedy is just so cool because we can all get on the same page and be like, oh, I also feel that. I also know that. I also understand that just like how you understand that, even though we're totally different people. And feeling that when I was growing up was definitely through my dad because he would go, he had like two jokes. They were two horrible jokes, but he would go and he would tell everyone we'd meet, you know, a new teacher, a server at a restaurant, whatever. And seeing a joke's power to just connect you to someone and you're automatically like, oh, cool. Like we're both on the same page with having a good time. It was a superpower I wanted, and it was something that I really wanted to work on, build my craft on, grow in, so I could use those superpowers, you know, for good, to make people happy, and also to fulfill, you know, my wonderful hopes and dreams, and that void that my mom left for me saying I wasn't a nurse. (laughs) Yeah, comedy is a superpower, and I have to say that realization you had when you were 21, I wish that a lot more people would have it at 21, because I think in a way... So much of what we've been fed has been a lie. You know, you go to school, you go to college, you get a job, and you're gonna, it's all gonna work out. And I think actually, you know, once you're done with like your student loans <laughs> and all this other stuff, you just look at your life and you think, wait, what did I do? Where the creativity we're all born with? And, and so amazing that you had this I, I at 21. Completely agree. And also, you know, I've, as someone who, you know, is in their 30s, like I have friends who've lived their life and they're the same age and they've hated the last 10 years. And that freaks me out. That like scares me so much. Let's just say you make it to 70. A, a seventh of your life sucked. <laughs> like that's so frightening. You know what I mean? Like, like you're saying, there's so much creativity that we're all born with. There's so much magic and fun that we have. And we're kind of fed this information where, yeah, you know, go to school, get a good job, boom, boom, pow. But it's, like money isn't everything. A lot of people, especially in the States, were like, if we make enough money, we can afford great vacations, buy a nice house, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, that's awesome. But why would I want to work so hard and hate what I do for a wonderful week vacation when 365 days out of the year, I could tour wherever I want to tour, make people laugh, have a good time, eat a bunch of crazy barbecue in the South and eat a bunch of crazy seafood in the Northeast. You know what I mean? Like, I love every day of my life. Tell me about confronting uh, your own identity in the South. I've, you know, I've driven through some parts that I'm curious to know when you're in it. Is there anything you notice? Anything stood out to you? Yeah, I used to, I, I have all the love for the Northwest. We're going to go to the Northwest before we go to the South. Um, I have all the love for it. Spokane, Seattle, Portland, very different cities from the middle of Oregon, very different cities from the middle of Washington. And I would tour there at least a couple times a year. And what I found is when I went by myself, I would, I would get pulled over a lot. If I were to bring an opener, if I was touring with another comic who was also, you know, like black or Filipino or Asian or Latino, whatever, we get pulled over all the time. As soon as I start, bring, start bringing a white opener, I was good. 
And it was kind of the same thing in the South. I remember I drove to Texas a few times. I had a couple shows in Chicago where we went kind of the Southern route, then Louisiana. And it was the same thing when I would be there by myself. I didn't feel like people were hostile necessarily. I didn't feel like people were mean to me, but just, you know, little microaggressions, you know, you, you get pulled over like every other day you walk into a place and obviously, you know, you're probably not going to get served before someone else. And there are things that I think we've kind of gone through. We realize we don't like it. We're trying to fight for a better future, but when we're there, that's just what's happening. And that's kind of, that's kind of my answer to it. Like it's, it, it was, it was awkward. It was weird, but you learn to adjust. You know, if I have, if I'm touring with a white guy, they're going to treat us normal and I'm not going to be worried about getting pulled over. It's just kind of, you just do little things like that to kind of make it a little easier. It, you know, like you can't even pinpoint. It's just sort of exists in the air. It's weird because it's what, what do you, what do you do? I'm trying to make rent by working this club and I got to drive there. Whatever weird things come along the way, we're fighting the good fight. We're fighting for a better future. But when I'm just trying to get to work, I, it, it is what it is. Wow. I feel like you could write a book you and other comedians of color. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually, I, I actually interviewed, I don't know if you know Maz Jabrani, he's an Iranian comedian and he's actually really passionate about the census. And we did a series on sent because Iranians uh, are, are in the white category. And so it causes them as a people to be very undercounted. And so uh, he has been, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing for Iranians in the last two census counts to make sure they identify as Iranian American. And so he has really, really interesting racial comedy as well. Um, so comedy has always fascinated me. I'll, I'll say that I've been very exposed to sort of more of the mainstream. I remember being a teenager and reading um, Jerry Seinfeld's book. I saw it at a Target and like, I, you know, I, I just, it just spoke to me and I read it and I loved it. I love Tina Fey and 30 Rock. There's a line in that show that makes me think of you because uh, there's a scene where Jack is talking about immigrants uh -huh. And he's like, the first generation works their fingers to the bone. The second generation goes to college. And the third generation takes improv classes. <laughs> and so you kind of combine that second and third generation. You kind of didn't have to suffer whatever that, you know, generation is. And you just went straight for the improv. And so tell me about, I mean, you can comment all you want on Tina. I'm happy to hear that. But I'm really curious about how you sort of allowed yourself as a child or half child or of an immigrant to deviate from that path. Cause that has to be hard. It must've been a hard decision to make. For sure. Until I was maybe, I'm going to say like 2021, I didn't read straight up. I like never read things for book reports. I'd always like look up, not like I would get spark notes all the time. Like I could, it wasn't like I couldn't read. I just like, didn't read and I was like let me try to hack my way around this and it got to the point where you know you would try to read and you really couldn't have that reading comprehension you know what I mean you're because you're not in the cycle I'm a huge reader now I read probably like a book every couple of weeks the book that got me into everything and allowed me to be a reader and was like this is the joy of reading was bossy pants a thousand percent I have I have three copies right over here I have a hardcover I have the paperback yellow and then the white paperback Tina Fey was huge for me. And 30 Rock was like, 
everyone is a Parks and Recs person. I was always a 30 Rock person, but I never get starstruck ever. Like, I don't care if you're Dave Chappelle or The Rock or whoever it is. Like, I don't, I, I, cool. You're just a person. You're a human being and I respect and love all the accomplishments you've done, but like, you're a human. So what's up? The only time I've ever been starstruck is I was working, I think I had a gig working like a social media thing for the Emmys and um, Tina Fey like rounded a corner in a beautiful blue dress. She looked gorgeous. And it was the only time in my life where I was like, uh, it was like, oh, what's going on? Yeah. You know, my improv introduction very much has to do with the groundlings and how I firmly believe that every person in the world should take an improv class and get good at it because it's so much about acceptance and togetherness and connecting to me anyway. And that those are skills that should be in everything we do. So how did you actually cultivate the comedy skills if you hadn't, if you, you know, we're going to go down this other more normal path in life? Ever since I was a kid, I was always attracted to like performance, like live performance. And I think it's because I love my parents very dearly. I respect my parents so hard, but you know what it's like having minority parents like they worked so hard they worked their fingers to the bone to make this opportunity for you and all they want is for you to do the most of that opportunity as possible and achieve a certain level that they maybe couldn't achieve back in their home city or their hometown or you know their home country and i think my mom is so wonderful but always had a criticism you know what i mean it wasn't there was never a good job there was never a high five there was never a pat on the back it was like why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? Why was it uh, an A minus instead of an A plus? Nothing was ever good enough for my folks. And it was a cultural thing. It wasn't them being mean. It wasn't them being, you know, horrible parents. It was just something where it was like nothing was ever good enough. So something that really drew me to performance was the fact that you could do something and people like it right off the bat. In high school, I ended up playing football my freshman year, and then very LA story. It started raining one day, so they canceled football practice. Of course, because that's what we do in Southern California. Football practice was canceled. I was waiting for my dad to pick me up, so I had to wait like an hour and a half because he was going to pick me up after work. That's the way it worked out. And I actually stumbled upon um, an improv workshop for the improv team at our high school. And I was like, can I just watch? I'm just killing time. They're like, sure. They're like, do you want to do a scene with us? And I was like, okay. And I did this scene and I was doing things that were making people laugh. And then people were going like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's cool. I did that. And you feel, you just felt so much love. Like, I feel like I almost equate laughter to, like, I don't know if you ever had a job where you've had a boss specifically go out of their way to be like, hey, you did great on that project or that thing that you did. I'm taking time to make sure that you know that I appreciate that and I value that and I think you're great. It's such a good feeling when a boss or someone tells that to you. Comedy, improv, stand-up, it's, it's that times a billion because you're doing something and people aren't thinking like, should I tell them good job? No, they're just instinct. Their body is just making them do a thing that validates who you are, what you're doing, shows they appreciate you, shows that you're bringing them joy. They're not even trying to do it. It's just happening when you're doing it well. And I really discovered that feeling that first time I did an improv scene on the football was canceled day. I quit football the next day. I joined the improv team. <laughs> My dad was very proud. I'm not going to do a sport. Let's do theater. It'll be great. I love jazz hands. Um, started doing that. Uh, we had a improv coach named Tom Clark, an amazing comedian. And um, he was setting up a workshop with us. And I remember one day being like, can you do a workshop next week? 
And he was like, I can't next week. I'm on tour in South Africa. And I was like, that is so cool. <laughs> you were trying to set up an improv work. You just casually drop like, oh, I, I'm going to be on tour in another country. I'm like, that is so amazing. And I think that's when stand-up kind of started like first getting into my brain. Like, that's what I want to do. I think that is super cool. So I did more improv in college. Eventually did stand-up. And I still do improv and stand-up to this day. But stand-up's kind of like the main path that I'm on just because you got to choose. You got to choose one or the other. And I chose the, the stand-up route, which I'm very grateful for and I love very much. How did you sort of come to terms with that decision? Because it looks like you made the decision on a dime. And and I also want to say that it, comedy is one of those things where you, you're the only permission you have to give yourself is to actually put yourself out there. But you don't, you, you know, everything else, it feels like we're waiting for someone else to give us the permission to do something. We're, we're in comedy, people just laugh. How did you step into that part of yourself and say, this is who I am? I mean, go well, firstly, it. I completely agree. As a comic, you can have a, an hour HBO special. You can go on tour and be away from your family for a year. There are a lot of hard things in comedy, but nothing, absolutely nothing will be as hard as the first time you make that decision to go on stage. Like that first step is the most difficult thing you will ever do in comedy. That's why when I like do a comedy workshop or do a stand-up workshop, I tell people like, if you can get up at an open mic, you're good. You know, eventually you can gain the skills to write now, or eventually you can gain the skills to do whatever. But going up is definitely the hardest thing you will ever do for your first time. For me, I feel like I cheated a little bit only because I did have that improv and, you know, a little bit of a theater background. So I was comfortable kind of getting up. Um, but that's a completely different game because with improv, the audience has the exception where it's like, we don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. With theater, you're reading off a script and you're like, let me just memorize my beats. With stand-up, it's all you. If you fail, you fail and you will cry yourself to sleep for the next week. But if you win, you will not be able to sleep for the next week because you're riding a high and an excitement that's just so exciting. Um, I do feel like initially getting into it is hard, but you kind of just got to, you kind of just got to do it at the end of the day. Like you just got to do it. And I would hope for, you know, anyone who does comedy, it's not going to be everyone, but I would hope for everyone that tries comedy that you do it. You stick to it, and hopefully in your first few months, in your first few years, if you're lucky, maybe in your first few weeks or days, you have that set that just makes you feel like a king or a queen or a god, where every joke you have, they are laughing. They give you a standing ovation. They're clapping for you. They're loving you. Every, every riff you have, every ad lib you have, every crowd work thing you do that is even planned, it's hitting. When you have that night, you will feel such a level of excitement and joy and validity and acceptance that all the fear and all the scary things to get there would have been all okay. Um, and that's kind of like, that's, that's kind of like the weird thing about comedy. Like your first step is going to be so hard. That first time you go up is going to be so hard, but you just got to do it. And trust me, eventually you're going to have an amazing set that made all the bad stuff just kind of fade away. And that's the dragon you're going to be chasing for the rest of your life. Final question back to identity. So when you are half, you don't completely feel a hundred percent Filipino, even though you're, you might be very accepted by your family and that culture you don't feel 100% Mexican. For you, when you maybe had to confront your identity of being mixed and peel the layers of, of who you are, how was that experience for you? How did you overcome maybe some potential for negative connected to that? 
And then how do you use your comedy to connect to your identities and, and maybe just become more of who you are, even though you're half? <laughs> <laughs> I hear it. I get it. I was talking to another comic recently, kind of sort of about this. And it's, I really found my identity as a half Mexican, half Filipino, Mexipino guy through comedy, because they asked me a question where it was essentially like, do you eventually want to be like the biggest Filipino comic or do you want to be the biggest Filipino, you know, comedian in the comedy scene? And I was like, no, like, I just, I want to be the best comic I can be. I want to be the greatest comedian I can be. I don't want to be the best Latino comic. I don't want to be the best Filipino comic. I want to be the best me I can be at my craft. And beyond comedy, even though it's such an integral part of my identity and who I am and how I see the world, it's kind of the same thing with coming to terms of being, you know, mixed. Because it's, it's not like I want to be the coolest Filipino or the most Filipino Filipino or the most Latino Mexican or the most, you know, Mexican Mexican. I just want to be a great person. At the end of the day, I'm trying to be the best person I can be, provide for my family, be open-minded, fight the good fight, fight for equality. If someone needs something, I want to be a, a good person so I can like provide that and fight for those people. And those are all things that don't really have to do with race. But at the same time, just being the best human being you can be within that, I really want to give some shine and celebrate to things that I enjoy and things that I feel are extremely important and should, should be like almost like salvaged. The goal, the number one thing is like being the best person, not being the best race thing. And that's how I feel like I kind of come to terms with my identity. Like I'm just trying to be a good dude, just trying to get by every day, pay my bills, do my thing, look out for one another. And I love being Filipino. I love being Latino. It's always going to be a part of me, but I wouldn't say it necessarily defines me as it would opposed to just my actions and who I want to be. And making people laugh along the way. Yeah. Well, trying, definitely trying. <laughs> Tell the folks exactly what the best platforms are to follow you on and keep tabs on what you're doing. You can find me on Instagram at Eric Escobar. I spell it weird. E-R-I-K-E-S-C-O-B-A-R. Be sure you put that K in the Eric. Follow me at Eric Escobar for all upcoming shows, all those fun stuffs, cool announcements. I'm also on everything else pretty much as Eric Escobar, but I feel like Instagram's the main grind. As your wonderful host said, I have a TED Talk out. Definitely check that out. And I'm also on this season of I Can See Your Voice available on Hulu. So if you want to see more of me, some fun other ways to get more Eric in your life. Partially Pinoy is a Podcast Network Asia production in partnership with Bridger Media in Los Angeles. Our show is developed and executive produced by Leila Jerusalem. The series is produced by Nikai Lucanias. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>